Hello, welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. Hello, base campers. I hope you're all doing well. Today's conversation is one that I've been wanting to have for quite some time, climate change. It's a topic that is much more controversial and up for debate than all the mainstream media pundits would have you believe. As a lifelong nature lover, living in harmony with our beloved planet is important to me and my family. Yet, how do we separate the signal from all the noise, especially when any dissenting opinions from highly qualified climate scientists like my guest today are being suppressed, ridiculed, and canceled? Haven't we seen this before? Didn't those that did not want to participate in the mRNA clinical trials, the unvaccinated, get ridiculed, ostracized, and canceled amidst all the COVID noise? Can you see a similar dynamic here? I can. My intention with this episode was and is to find clarity for myself on an issue that it's important to me. I want to be informed on this topic, not be spoon-fed one side of the debate. I want to know what is what, and I hope you do too. Before we get started, here are three quotes to help tee up the interview. The first one is from the author herself, who says, quote, Such apocalyptic statements rightfully draw criticism for leading people to believe that these scenarios are inevitable rather than implausible. Dystopian climate fiction is the place to explore such scenarios. Unquote. And another from Brian O'Neill, he's one of the leading architects of the shared socioeconomic pathway, who says, quote, there isn't, you know, like a Mad Max scenario amongst the SSPs. We are generally in the climate field not talking about futures that are worse than today, unquote. And finally, one from anthropologist Peter Wood, who says, quote, climate change is just a mental tattoo, a phrase we invoke with an air of scientific sophistication to give some sense of knowledgeability about the unknowable, unquote. That's it. Let's go sit around the fire with a climate scientist who will help us separate solid scientific consensus signal from all the noise that poses as such. Enjoy the interview. Dr. Judith Curry is the president and co-founder of Climate Forecast Applications Network. She is a professor emerita at Georgia Institute of Technology, where she served as the chair of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for 13 years. Her expertise in climate dynamics, extreme weather, and prediction predictability. Dr. Curry is a fellow at the American Meteorological Society, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the American Geophysical Union. She's also the author of an upcoming book, which we'll talk about today, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. Here's my interview with Dr. Judith Curry. All right, I am here with Dr. Judith Curry, author, thought leader, climate scientist, Judith Curry. Judith, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It is great to have you on the show. Well, thank you for the invite. I look forward to our talk. Absolutely. You know, I you came across my my radar and you were kind enough to send me an advanced copy of your book titled Climate Uncertainty and Risk: Rethinking Our Response. And I got to say, you hit a home run because I found the book, it had an, a lot of science and citations that, that uh, you know, kind of science nerds and engineers would, would find useful to validate uh, your viewpoints. But it was also written in this everyday, like I could understand it. I'm not a scientist. And it answered many of my questions about what's going on with climate change and the narrative. And so I think 
I think you hit a home run. I think people are going to find it enormously useful to help make sense of what's going on. So first off, congratulations on writing such a great book. Um, and I'm just glad that you took the time today to come and share with us. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. I'm I'm really, you know, gratified to get your feedback on this because, um, you know, on the one hand, it's published by an academic press, you know, so it, it needs to have you know, real credibility. Mm. You know, I can't, it's not a polemic or a rant or anything like that. It's a, it's a very scholarly document, but the real audience I wanted to reach was what I would call the muddled middle people who are trying to figure this out. And more importantly, people who have to make decisions um, mm. in government at all levels, companies, even individuals in choosing where to live. So I'm really gratified by the hear that you found it understandable. Absolutely. Yeah, I did. And so I guess before we get into everything, what is your background? Like, uh, you know, how long have you been a climate scientist? Uh, yeah, just a little bit about, you know, where you're at in the world and, uh, you know, how long have you been working in this field? Okay, well, I got my PhD in geophysical sciences from the University of Chicago in 1982. Mm. So, you know, I've been at this for 40 years. And, you know, the, the transition, you know, back when I was in school, the field of climate science didn't even exist. You were an atmospheric scientist, a geophysicist, an oceanographer. And, you know, this and climate was sort of adjacent to a lot of these fields, but nobody was actually majoring in climate. And so things have evolved um, substantially in the last several decades. So there's all sorts of people who are majoring in climate studies or climate this and that. Mm -hmm. Many And many of these programs do not give people a thorough grounding in what I would call the geology, the oceanography, and the atmospheric sciences that you need to understand what's going on. So a lot of these people are just accepting the alarm and, and running with it, Yeah, you know, yeah. In, a, in a variety of different directions. So, um, you know, we're, the whole field is sort of losing its roots mm. in the science, but at the same time, the, the the dimensions of the climate problem are just expanding all the time, not just in the physical and chemical sense, but in the societal and the broader environmental mm. sense. Sure. I mean, it, you know, if if you're not worried about climate change itself, um, then you're probably worried about the the draconian global policies that people are talking about about changing the entire energy and transportation infrastructures and getting rid of, you know, fertilizers that emit, you know, nitrogen into the atmosphere and no livestock because they emit methane and, you know, on and on, all these changes that people are talking about that are downright scary. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, aren't really going to help the climate. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said that, you know, my I'll just give a little bit of a background as part of the muddled middle, which I am and probably many of my listeners are as well, in that, you know, I've been a life I live in the Pacific Northwest, which is a beautiful part of the world. And I've been a lifelong nature lover my whole life, hiking, camping, skiing. Um, and, you know, there's always been ever since I was a little kid. 
Um, there's always been something that we were doing to the environment that was going to kill either the planet or us off. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, it was acid rain from all the pollution. Uh, and I remember, you know, they, they said, you know, we're, we're somehow responsible for all the natural disasters. What, you know, our imprint is going to cause California to, you know, uh, fall into the sea. I remember that when I was a little kid, I was worried about that. Then there was the deteriorating ozone layer um, that, you know, was very dire. You know, we weren't going to make our way out of that seemed to be the subtext of that. Then it was Al Gore and the inconvenient truth, uh, you know, phenomenon with the shrinking polar ice caps. Um, and I see he just came out and said something about the oceans are going to be boiling soon, which is just an absurd statement. I can't even believe that came out of his mouth. Uh, if he wants any credibility, I can't believe that that would be something that he would say. But and now here we are with the CO2 global warming problem, which we're going to talk about. And so, you know, for me, I think for me and my friends, we're looking to have somebody help us separate the signal from the noise. Like what is what? So I thought, you know, you have a great quote in your book, and then I'm going to ask you about this. But you say, quote, while the public may understand little about climate science, nearly everyone has been exposed to the statement that there is a consensus among scientists regarding dangerous climate change, unquote. And then you go on to point out, hey, wait, there's a difference between a scientific consensus and a consensus of scientists. So before we get into it, it might seem obvious, but I guess I just wanted to give you a chance to address that before we get into it, um, because the, the quote is spot on. Everybody has heard of this um, dire circumstances that we're in, and they're presenting it as if there is a consensus of scientists or, okay. or, 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 or a scientific consensus, I should say. That's what they're presenting it as. Okay. So everybody knows that the earth orbits the sun. It's a fact. Yeah. And nobody talks about a consensus about the earth orbiting the sun. Right. Uh, people start talking about a consensus when there isn't, in fact, a genuine scientific consensus yeah. is when there's um, some sort of disagreement or something that we don't know very well, like um, there's medical consensus panels when a bunch of doctors get in a room and decide which treatments are going to be approved by you know, for Medicare reimbursement for specific diseases. That's an example where there's sort of a consensus that's reached because a decision needs to be made. Mm. Okay. So, and that's a consensus of scientists, not a real scientific consensus. So on the climate issue, um, uh, like I said, it's even a relatively young field. I mean, you know, a couple decades, you know, three three, maybe three decades old really is an identifiable field. And, and since we've been having like the IPCC assessment started in 1990, and that really heralds the beginning of, you know, synthesizing the whole body of information about climate change. And that also heralds the beginning of the consensus on climate change, where the Procedures for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, said something like that. We shall endeavor to reach a consensus on all the findings. Mm 
And so here we have this essentially a manufactured consensus um, of a group that was commissioned to focus on dangerous human-caused climate change, not on natural climate variability, not on any benefits of warming, but just to focus on dangerous human-caused climate change. So um, they've attempted to create this consensus, and to some extent they have, but like it's not a scientific consensus, it's a manufactured consensus. Right. And they're trying to enforce it because they think they need to speak consensus to power, that right. policymakers won't do anything if there isn't a consensus. Well, that hasn't worked so well. In spite of the so-called consensus, the policymakers really aren't doing too much. It's more bloviating, mm -hmm. but we're getting perilously close in the U.S., you know, where some states are ready to completely dismantle their electric power um, infrastructure. New York is way out there in front of the oh, yeah. on with California coming a close second. And I actually sit on the committee for the New York um, Electricity System Reliability Corporation examining the role of extreme weather events and how that might, you know, impact <laughs> their plans yeah. to totally renewable energy. But it's scary. It's really scary. I mean, the states are really moving ahead on this. I know. Well, and some countries are too. And, and go ahead. But, you yeah. know, they're going to run in, you know, realities. <laughs> yeah. They're going to run up against reality pretty soon in terms of costs and technologies and reliability and security and so on. Um, but but this whole idea that we need to speak consensus to power is really a very bad decision making model yeah. for complex problems. I mean, if it's simple, like, you know. Well, red dye number two might cause cancer. Well, maybe we should get right. rid of dye number two because we can, you know, use red beets or something if right, we want right. red coloring. Yeah. You know, it's not a big deal. Yeah. But uh, the, trying to, okay, that they're trying to fix, solve the climate change problem <laughs> by eliminating fossil fuels. Um, first, is climate change really a problem? We can talk about that later. Second, can we control the climate even if we get rid of CO2 emissions? Well, no. And the third issue is that the so-called cure is going to be way worse than any conceivable manifestation of the climate disease. Yes. So that's yes. sort of where we're at. And that, it's just, yeah. That, te that teases up. I, I was going to go through the four kind of things that you had mentioned in the book that that kind of frame uh you know the 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 issue the challenges and then kind of look at it like what we know with confidence but first you, you mentioned climate variability and people might not understand that so what's the dis distinction in your field between climate change and climate variability and why is that important to understand the distinction well there's scientific definitions and there's political definitions you know mm -hmm. over the earth's 4.6 billion years the climate has always changed and varied you know you know we're most familiar with like the el nino and la nina 
You know, yep. happen every few years and big changes in our, you know, in our local climates. And then there's, you know, multi-decadal variations associated with the large-scale ocean circulations. And then there's solar cycles. And all of this can be punctuated by volcanic eruptions. And then you have longer-term changes in Earth-Sun geometry or geological motions Um in the Earth's crust, you know, so you have all these things going on on different time scales that change the climate. Okay, so around, you know, in the 18th century with the Industrial Revolution, you know, we started, you know, using fossil fuels and population was increasing and there was, you know, a lot of deforestation to transitional lands to agriculture. There was lots of urbanization. So we changed the landscape of the earth in a lot of ways. And, and in doing all this, I mean, it was even though the populations weren't very large back then, the pollution was insane. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the late 1800s, London oh, yeah. was unlivable. Yeah. I mean, they have these toxic smog periods where all sorts of people would just die. Yeah. I, I mean, so it was really rough on the environment, the Industrial Revolution. And then slowly, as technologies improved, and especially for the more advanced countries, you know, they energy and transportation became cleaner. I mean, pollution is, you know, air pollution is, at least in the U.S., is much less of a problem. I mean, than it was even, um, you know, a few decades ago. When yeah. I moved to Atlanta in 2002, um, you'd look up at the, there's never a blue sky. It was even if there wasn't a cloud, it was always like this sort of milky white, milky gray. You never saw a blue sky. Mm-hmm. And by the time I left, um, around, 2015 2017 there were plenty of blue skies um they really cleaned it up um largely transitioning away from coal burning and um i think even i think even l i think even la has nice bright sunny days that used to be really bad you know remember the days 20 years ago it was just always smog and i know they get their smoggy days when it gets socked in but there's plenty of days where it's clear there as well so yeah sure so so the point is is is, you know as people become wealthier and as technologies advance even though the population is growing that you know the environment doesn't necessarily have to be degraded Mm -hmm. and we're feeding more and more people on essentially the same amount of land as several decades ago. Um, Agricultural um, productivity is becoming much more efficient and higher. You know, yield rates are much higher. So we have enough food to feed the world. I mean, there's distribution problems and corruption and all sorts of things like that. But in principle, we have enough food to feed the world. And we're, we're becoming less vulnerable to weather disasters. Over the last 100 years, um the, the the number of lives lost is now only about from weather and climate disasters is about three percent of what it was um a hundred years ago. We used to have like tropical cyclones in the Indian Ocean. There was one in 1970 that killed an estimated 500,000 people in what is yeah. now Bangladesh. And this precipitated when Pakistan didn't you know, really helped them. This precipitated the split off of 
Bangladesh from Pakistan, you know, and it had real geopolitical circumstances. And, you know, in the, the last, oh, well, I can't remember the year of the last really big one, but it's, it's within the last eight years, I think a, a, a storm of similar magnitude and only about 3,000 people were killed. A, because there's better warning systems, people can actually evacuate you know, it's just not <laughs> a, a guy and his cow trying to reach higher ground. You know, you have actual transportation right. systems, um, you know, so we're much less vulnerable to extreme weather. And so as we become wealthier and technologies advance, you know, we can manage to maintain a relatively clean environment, produce enough food, have enough energy um and protect ourselves from extreme weather um you know so i don't see <laughs> things are really bad right now yeah um and, well, and, and and there there was a quote you had in the book too where it was who was it uh you know it was a somebody i'll i'll get it when i record my intro but he was basically saying like with all these apocalyptic predictions, nobody in the cli- in the climate science field talks that way. We we know we never assume we don't see it as like tomorrow is going to be worse than today. You know, and it's like wow. Well, oh, you okay. never you, ne- you never hear that in the media. It's always like how bad it is. And here a scientist is who's working in the field and says we don't talk that way we, we we don't see it getting worse it's like wait a minute where where is your appearance on msnbc talking about climate with that viewpoint you don't get any airtime okay i think what you're talking about is is uh, the section on the emissions scenarios you know how much emissions yep. we can expect you know in the 21st century and so economists have put together these socioeconomic pathways where they make right. projections about population increase, the what kind of energy they use, um, what kind of policies there might be, uh, on and on it goes. You know, all these kind of scenario technology developments, all these scenarios. And for any of the scenarios that they come up with, um, people are better off you know, in the future, you know, by mm-hmm. several times, you know, four and a half times in, you know, in the more likely scenarios. So nobody's talking about being worse off yeah. in 2100, you know, we'll all be wealthier provided we don't do something really bad to screw things up, like, you know, dismantle our electric power systems right. and, our, and, and destroy our agriculturals productivity i mean it's within our power to do really stupid things like that sure. but in a business as usual kind of scenario where we don't do those things i mean you know we should be fine um you know individual locations are always going to get hit with a hurricane or a drought or whatever but they always have been in the us i mean the weather was much worse in the 1930s I mean, the worst heat waves by a long shot, the worst droughts, uh, the biggest wildfires. Mm. I mean, things were really much worse in the first half of the 20th century than the weather we're seeing now. The worst landfalling hurricanes to strike the U.S. were in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, 
there's a lot more damage now because there's more population and wealth that's concentrated in these coastal regions. Um, It's 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 funny you say that because it seems like, you know, there's just one thing after the next. Oh, it's wildfire season. Oh, now there's this, now there's that. It's like, I think it would surprise people to to hear, oh, it used to be more extreme in the 30s. You know, it's like, what? Think about being... Think about being, you know, living in the 30s in the U.S. West. Yeah. With no air conditioning, you know, in these heat waves yeah. with no, you know, air filters or whatever. And the, the smoke and the heat, um, you know, no irrigation for the crops. I mean, it was just absolutely awful. Yeah. And people who think that we have it bad now. And and the, the worst thing is the kids and the young adults are being fed all this stuff. Right. You know, Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion, all this kind of thing, that they have no future, you know, and that things are horrible. We're all going to die and whatever. And they're all freaking out. And the minute I tell them, well, your grandparents suffered through a lot worse yeah. With a lot less money and no air conditioning and no air cleaners and no irrigation. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's sort yeah. of put it into perspective how good we have it now, particularly in the U.S. And you say, oh, well, it's fine for the U.S., but we have to do this for all the poor countries, Africa and all that. Well, excuse me, my company. Okay. We forgot part of my bio where I spent most of my career in universities. And I recently retired as the chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech. I now have my own company, Climate Forecast Applications Network. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a growing part of our business is in South Asia and Africa. Okay, And, and so I understand what those people need. And it's not... Wind and solar power. They right. want real electricity. They want real communications. They want internet. In Africa, there's hardly, you know, the cell phone penetration is about 10%. You know, um, you know, they, they need decent weather forecasts. They need transportation. They need machinery big, for the big, farm. big, big, big surprise. They want things that the first world has. <laughs> you know, of course. Yeah. You know, come and, on. and and, and yeah. the, the, the sick thing, here's the really sick thing, is the money that used to go to developing these countries and helping them adapt to extreme weather and help them develop economically. All of that money is being re-diverted to uh, emissions mitigation. So mm. there's all these strings attached to any loans or any money they get that they can't be building, you know, fossil fuel plants and they can't be doing this and can't be doing the other. And and they're just making things worse. This is called energy apartheid, green colonialism, and and all sorts of other things. And it's absolutely immoral and reprehensible. Mm -hmm. So in the name of saving the planet and trying, you know, so that the poor people can, I don't know what, but what they want is electricity and they want help reducing their vulnerability to extreme weather. And we're not helping with them with that. We're actually um, tying their hands behind their back. They can't get loans. <laughs> to, yeah. to, they have plenty of gas and oil resources and the big companies come in and strip their resources and send it to Europe and Asia. <laughs> and yeah. because they don't have money in their countries to build gas burners and the pipelines 
so they can have natural gas based yeah. electricity. So well, it's, and, it's, it's, and there, it's and, and there, there's something too where I found out to my shock, but it made sense is that the vast majority in Africa, they don't, they're unbanked. They have no, you know, it's just like, you're like, what? Like there's no, yeah, there's no fluidity in terms of resources for them at all. Oh, no. Um, I forget. Eunice got the Nobel prize in economics. I'm going to say maybe, maybe 2008 or 2009, he developed some microfinance things where you know the farmer yeah. can get a $20 loan you know, know. To, to help you know buy a seeds kind of thing right you know it's micro you know and figured out a way to do the microfinance and it was the game changer um Absolutely. in India and Pakistan and some of those South Asian countries you know some of them are like Bangladesh and Vietnam are doing really well mm -hmm. India pretty well um myanmar pakistan afghanistan you know some of them are still doing really horribly yeah, um, yeah. but you know it can happen you know right Bangladesh is a real success story and you know i you know africa is is really the tough nut to to crack and i'm i'm working with a company who's trying to establish crop insurance in africa so that when they have a bad crop year, you know, they, they don't lose everything. You know, in the old days, well, not even the old days, a couple of decades ago, you know, if the monsoon rains failed, there would be mass suicides by farmers. You know, their life sure. was over. You know, they had no money. They had nothing. You know, they're mass suicides. And, you know, and the crop insurance is potentially a game changer. Absolutely. So, I want to I want to I want to back up a little bit because um, we're getting down some rabbit holes. I want to back up. And I want to frame what, what is typically the challenge of climate change, how it's formulated. I want to look at each one of these. There's four of them. And I just want to get your perspective. Is there a scientific uh, uh, consensus or near consensus? Um, or is it very much open to debate? And the four are, uh, the one is the Earth's climate is warming. Number two is we are causing the warming by emitting carbon dioxide, CO2, from burning fossil fuels. Number three is a warming climate is dangerous. And number four, we need to prevent dangerous climate change by rapidly reducing and eliminating our CO2 emissions. So let's look at those four one by one and just get your take. Do we have, is there a scientific, you know, this is part of it. They roll everything together and say, trust us, we're the science. But it's like, well, wait a minute, let's let's break this down. Let's use a little bit of scientific inquiry to, to see what is what, where is there um, agreement amongst all the science scientists or near agreement, and where is there very much open to debate? Um, so if the first one is the Earth's climate is warming. Is it warming? Um, sure. Yeah. About, um, we were in the Little Ice Age, say from the 1400s to the middle of, still about 1850, mm -hmm. and that was the coldest period you know, in the last thousand years. And we started coming out of it like around 1860. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and we've been warming since then. Um, in about 1950, after World War II, the fossil fuel emissions, you know, started getting substantial. Mm -hmm. okay. And the warming really picked up around 1980. And um, 
was warming, you know, it had been warming since, you know, there's fits and starts and ups and downs and year to year and decadal variations, but overall we've been warming. Um, so I can put the earth's climate is warming. I can check the yeah, box as something we can confidently know. The scientists are in agreement. It's, it's warming. Yeah. Yep. Good. That's good. That's, that's good for us middling middle to know. Yes, it's warming. So we don't get caught in a bar discussion saying, oh, it's not warming. We know it's warming. So we can use that as our, as our basis. What about, uh, does carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels cause warming? It contributes to warming all other things being equal okay okay more co2 in the atmosphere will act to warm the surface yep. however but how much how sensitive is the climate um to adding co2 well there's huge disagreement even amongst the, the climate models that the mm. ipc uses the, their sensitivity um ranges of the climate models ranges from 1.8 degrees to 5.5 degrees. I mean, that's a pretty substantial difference. It's about a factor of three. Um, so we don't know how much, and we don't know how much CO2 contributes relative to natural climate variability. I mean, we've got um, solar variations. There was a solar maximum um, in the late part of the 20th century. Um, the ocean circulation patterns can substantially uh, change the climate through modifying the atmospheric circulations and the amount of clouds. So if there's fewer clouds in the atmosphere, more sunlight gets in and warms things up. You know, So a lot depends on not just um, CO2, but, but clouds are a big deal. You know, just variations in clouds can cause a huge change, you know, Absolutely. in global temperature. And then you've got sporadic volcanic eruptions. You've got, you know, underwater volcanoes. You've got under ice sheet volcanoes. There's all sorts of natural things going on in the climate yeah. system. And because the IPCC focuses only on dangerous human-caused climate change, the community hasn't been focusing on these natural contributions sufficiently. Um, so we don't really have a good answer to how much of the recent warming is caused by CO2. Um, some scientists say it's 100%. Um, I think as, as you're as you're describing the focus on CO2, it reminds me of the saying when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like they can literally not integrate anything else because they're so focused on the CO2 emissions must be driving all of the warming. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, is here's one. The third one is a warming climate is dangerous. This is one that I push back on. I mean, I don't know that much about the topic, but I'm like, well, how do we even, even if th there is some slight warming, do we know that that's bad or dangerous? Like they, they assume warming is bad, but it's like, wait a minute, is it, do we know that for sure? Do we have some sort of model that would show that this is a really bad trend if the temperature goes up a bit? I mean, what, what is your take on that? Is there a consensus on that warming, a warming climate is dangerous? Okay, now dangerous is an issue of values, and yeah. science has very little to say about values. Mm. Um, well, let's just look at the U.S. for starters. Mm. Um, 
the states that are losing population are the ones in the north, <laughs> okay, um, notably Illinois and New York, and part of that is for economic and political reasons, but a big part of it is, is the weather. Uh, people don't like cold winters, and where are they moving? They're moving to Florida, to Texas, yep. to Arizona. Yep. Okay, so people like warm, and it's not just in the U.S. Um, there was a survey of people in China. Um, I think it was published in 2014 or something. And they asked that a survey of, do you think the better the weather is better now or back in the 70s? And most of the people thought it was better now than in the 70s. Mm. So, so people, you know, aren't really perceiving this as dangerous. I mean, and, and again, people who live on the coast and get hit by a hurricane, well, sure, they think it's dangerous, but um, worse hurricanes <laughs> hit Florida. You know, in the 20s and 30s, like I mentioned previously, um, it's just that, you know, and, and Florida has done a pretty good job with building codes and hardening its infrastructure and and increasing the robustness of its electric power systems and on and on it goes. So all things considered, Florida's doing a pretty good job of keeping up with things. Um, the. the Thinking, you know, equating danger with extreme weather events is really wrong because climate change isn't causing the weather extremes to get worse. Mm -hmm. um, so if you take that out of the equation, what we're left with is like the slow creep of sea level rise. Mm -hmm. um, sea level rise is the one thing that's unambiguously associated with warming. And sea level rise over the last hundred years has been about eight inches. Mm -hmm. you know, every year it rises about three millimeters. Well, what does three millimeters mean? Well, if you stack two pennies on top of each other, that's three millimeters. Yeah. You know, and you have the tides, the daily tides, you know. Like I know. Several feet or even tens of feet in some locations. So um, to some extent, you know, this slow creep of sea level rise is lost in the noise of storm surges and tidal variations and whatever. But, you know, people can manage sea level rise and the Dutch have been doing it for centuries. Right. Um, nearly all of the country is below sea level. Um, some parts of the Netherlands are seven feet below sea level and they have, you know, incredible engineering feet, you know, to keep the seas away. Uh, in fact, it's that they spend a substantial portion of their GDP, you know, on coastal defenses, you know, but they're doing it. Um, so, so there are ways to manage sea level rise, and it really is a slow creep. And, mm -hmm. you know, and it's if people have to, you know, reach slowly retreat from the coast and the coast becomes redefined, if if some of those lovely Island areas, you know, that like the ones that got hit by Ian, Captiva, and Sanibel, and Fort Myers Beach. You know, if one of those disappears in a hurricane, well, we shouldn't be surprised. These are basically glorified sandbars. They're not permanent geologic features. Right. So, you know, the earth changes and we do need to adapt. And, you know, the microeconomics of how we deal with these things. 
Um, you know, people decide, well, we want to move or we're not going to build such a strong structure there. You know, we'll just build a shanty figure is going to get blown down in 20 years, but we're going to enjoy living there while it lasts. You know, people make all sorts of decisions for all sure. sorts of different reasons. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's our wealth and our infrastructure and our electric power systems that protect us from all this. Right, right. So, well, and and the, and the the fourth and final one is the conclusion that they always arrive at, which is basically we need to prevent dangerous climate change by rapidly reducing and and eliminating our CO two emissions. That's always where it goes to. Um, and you know, it sounds like you're questioning that. Why, why, why do you think this is where they always end up? Why, why is it, you know, is it for control? Is it for money? Is it like, what, what's okay. really going, why, why, why are they arriving at this? We must eliminate CO2. Uh, that means we're going all electric on the cars and we may need to limit, you know, how much people travel, uh, all these different things. Well, why do you think they're, they're, they always arrive at this like final spot, which is, you know, this is so dangerous, climate change, you know, don't be selfish, think about future generations, and let's all agree to agree that this is, you know, emissions are bad, it's causing global warming, warming is a catastrophe, and you must all get on board. Like, what, what is, what's driving this narrative that you see in so much of the media right now? Well, you have to go back to the 1980s mm -hmm. and the UN Environmental Program. Um Remember, you know, the 1970s, Jimmy Carter, the oil embargo and all that yep. kind of stuff. Yeah, first raised the issue. Okay, that this whole um, gas and oil stuff is a little bit precarious. You know, we need to just rethink our energy system. And there was like, and the coal people and nuclear paper saw it. Oh, cool. <laughs> Let's nuke oil and gas, you know, so coal and nuclear can have a renaissance. Well, uh, the, the Greens took care of the um, nuclear people, and, and coal was in ascendance for a while. Yeah. Um, but the UN Environmental Program was looking, you know, they were interested in non-governmental world control. They were anti-capitalist, anti-fossil fuels, you know, all this kind of thing. It was about power and control, thought there was too many people and you know, all this kind of stuff. And so that was the mindset of the UN Environmental Program. And they seized on the climate change issue as, you know, where they could carry these ideas forward. And so in the right around 19, late 1980s, 1990s, this is when the IPCC began, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So as early as 1992, we had an international treaty to prevent dangerous climate change. And the US even signed on to this international treaty. And this was before, you know, there was any kind of even a, an IPCC style consensus that, you know, the warming was happening, that it could be attributed to CO2 and that it would be dangerous. I mean, you know, the policy cart was way out in front of the scientific horse on this from the very beginning. Uh, so they decided yeah. they wanted to get rid of fossil fuels. And then they needed the science to back it up. Yeah, but then the science, it, it became um, <laughs> a policy-driven science. Sure. You know, instead yeah. of science-driven policy. 
So, so you had all this going on. You say, okay, well, well, okay, well, maybe nuclear power makes sense, but no, no, no. For some some reason, they wanted wind and solar. They latched onto this very early because these are the technologies that are available. They can be quickly implemented, but you know the engineers were left out of this discussion. Mm. You know, <laughs> now, the people who have to make all this work. Nobody was paying attention to them. And in fact, I have a couple of recent posts on this on my blog, climate, et cetera, judithcurry.com. And these are written by Russell Schusler, who's the former vice president of the Georgia Transmission Corp. You know, and he's one of these engineers who's, you know, sitting there trying to figure these things out. And he's been writing all these articles on, you know, all the problems and why this isn't going to work. And two blog posts ago, he described how it happened that the actual experts, the grid experts, the production experts, the operators have been left out of this discussion and completely marginalized from, you know, all these net zero by 2030 kind of policies. And we're setting ourselves up for some really big problems. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's you hear a lot about worst case. What what do you think is worst case right now in terms of climate change? Like what what is you know like it's it's common in in when you're problem solving. You know they do it in fine financial. You know they'll say you know uh, this is what I think is going to happen. This is worst case scenario. The bear viewpoint and the bull viewpoint. You know if everything breaks our way you know, that's what it'll be. But I'm I'm curious as to what your bearish, like your worst case scenario, because you hear all kinds of things. I've seen maps of, you know, I, I can't remember exactly how many decades in the future it is. It's not that far out. And it shows basically a map of the United States. And I mean, there's just vast areas underwater, you know, and I'm like, well, that's pretty extreme. Like the only place to live is in the Rocky Mountains and some other like it's it's like all the coastal areas are kind of wiped out until you get to a mountain range. And I'm like, that doesn't seem quite scaled to what we're talking about. But um, I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, what what is a worst case scenario in terms of climate uh, change or global warming? Like, what are we looking at? as a, okay, this, this is the way it could go. Um, just so we have some sort of backdrop or backstop, I guess. So we we're a little bit more immune to all the, the dire predictions that, that can get thrown our way on social media or even the media. Okay. Well, chapter nine in my book is entitled, what's the worst case. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. um, I look at extreme weather and I look at sea level rise. Let, let's talk about sea level rise. Yeah. Uh, the most likely case is that we can expect the slow creep of sea level rise to continue um, maybe another two feet by the mm -hmm. end of the century. Or it could be, you know, one foot. But that, that's what we're sort of looking like. And so, so that's pretty manageable. However, yeah. um, the worst case scenario for sea level rise is if there were to be a partial collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, mm -hmm. which is a marine ice sheet that's fairly vulnerable. Okay, if you took away the ice sheet, the land it's sitting on would be underwater. Okay, so it's yeah. it has a big ice shelf that's sitting out into the ocean and because it's a marine you know it moves you know the glacier ice flows so 
icebergs are already always breaking off and whatever. I mean, it, it's it's a generally unstable situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be marginally the melting and and the you know and more icebergs could break off maybe because of warming mm-hmm. but there's a lot of complex geological processes in place some of which are under ice and underwater volcanoes so it's getting a lot of heat yeah. from below um if that and, broke off what would that would that cause like the okay so the so ocean? On, yeah okay on the time scale of the 21st century um, based on that, there's two estimates. One based on processes that we think we understand fairly well, and the worst case might be about five feet mm-hmm. of sea level rise by 2100. Mm-hmm. And if some of the more speculative processes were come into play, it might be six or seven feet by yeah. 2100. Okay, so, so that, that's that's pretty big. If it was uh, sudden, if it was sudden, big. it if it was sudden, that's really big, right? Well, but no, it, it it would take yeah, it it would take decades to centuries for you know any really big sea level rise. But but these are yeah. you know on the low probability side. Okay, um, that's the what I would say the plausible worst. Well, the plausible worst case scenario, you know, is probably five feet. We've got some scenarios that are out there that have weak justification mm-hmm. that could take it to six or seven feet. Mm-hmm. But the more likely is probably one to two feet. Um, so that's what we're looking at in terms of sea level rise. Now, some of the worst scenarios for something that might happen don't have that much to do with warming. Um, one example in my book is the so-called arc storm. To those of you living in the West and who have seen this crazy succession of atmospheric rivers dump rain and snow into the Western US, well, we think, oh, wow, this has been crazy this year. But it was really, really, really crazy in the winter of 1861-62, when they had a series of atmospheric river events that ended up flooding the Central Valley of California, like 10 feet of water, you know, that lasted for months. Mm. And people thought, you know, and people then look back in the, the sedimentary records and they found that these huge crazy seasons happen about every 200 years ago and in the last thousand years there have been worse events than the ones in 1861 um so the odds are is that we're going to see another huge one like that before the end of the century mm-hmm. and global warming could spike the rainfall a bit um so there could be a little bit more rainfall in one of these um with global warming. So if we do get a crazy flooding like that in California, it wouldn't be caused by global warming, but it might the the amount of rainfall might be spiked a bit. Yeah. That makes sense. Another uh, example, yeah, another example that I gave in the book was, you know, what's the worst case hurricane that could hit Florida? Well, if you take the real worst case that's been observed, which was uh, the 1935 Labor Day hurricane, um, 
there might be a little bit more rainfall mm-hmm. and the wind speeds might be maybe 5% higher, you know, which are probably in the, <laughs> in the error range of how we even measure those wind speeds. Um, so it might be spiked a little bit, but it wouldn't necessarily cause Got the it. bad hurricane. So but- that's what we're looking at. You know, global warming can spike the main issue is we could get some more heavier rainfalls, you know, warmer sure. atmosphere, more water. I mean, it totally makes sense. Yep. Um, so, so when you have a heavy rain event, it might be exacerbated by global warming, but that's, right. about, that's about the worst, you know, these Judith, are the worst cases that I, that I'm thinking of. Yeah. Judith, what, what about geoengineering, kind of weather modification, cloud seeding, snow augmentation. You're hearing a lot about that. It it used to be the only people you ever heard about it was, you know, so-called conspiracy theorists or even citizen journalists, you know, and they would be called names for saying, oh yeah, there's no such thing. But it's easy to find companies that do, that partner with government stuff. Um, I don't know what it's like down there in Reno. I know you guys got an awful lot of snow in Tahoe that that raised some eyebrows. In Seattle, it's not uncommon to have a blue sky day, and then all of a sudden you you see these crisscross up in the sky, and there it's it's not contrails by airplanes. It's it's something that sticks, um, and it'll often be crisscross from planes. Uh, and they're cloud seeding. Apparently, it's really difficult to find out. Who's doing it? Like who authorized anybody, any private company or government to modify the weather or attempt to modify the weather with chemicals? Um, I don't know exactly. I I remember seeing a video and this not to go down a rabbit hole about Bill Gates. And I don't know if he's funding this or not. I don't really know. But I remember seeing a video of Bill Gates saying, yeah, we could combat climate change by uh, attempting to blot out the sun, that would help global warming. And I'm thinking to myself, who gave you the authority to try to blot out the sun? Like, who is this guy? Like, um, pe- my listeners know I rail on him all the time. He lives in Seattle here, and and uh, I don't think he likes humanity very much, but that's a whole separate uh, episode. Um, but I wanted to ask you, as a climate scientist, what's your take on it? Uh, what do you know about it? Do you see anything down there? Uh, you know, um, I was a little surprised to see, you know, private companies partnered with government agencies to, uh, for snow augmentation and, 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 uh, cloud seeding. And I, I never hear of a debate, uh, by policymakers in any of the States. All of a sudden people are just talking about like, Hey, what are they doing? Why are they doing this exactly? Did you guys get noticed that, you know, did they ask us about this? So um, anyways, yeah, I've got my tin hat on, but also I've got my observation as do a lot of people that are like, Hey, look at that. And it's like, yep. Okay. There's three issues here. Uh-huh. The first issues is regular cloud seeding that the government does a little bit of. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a big deal back in the fifties and sixties. The U S was doing a lot of research on this, you know, trying to seed clouds and the plains to, you know, help agriculture. It was a really big deal in Russia. Okay. Um, did it, did our... it, did it work? Was it effective to see? Okay. The, yeah. um, the only 
It seems to have been more effective in Russia, but who knows, coming out of Russia. It was interesting. Right. I wrote a co-authored a book with one of the Russian guys who was the leading theorist, you know, behind the cloud seeding in Russia. And he said, you know, that there's some things where it worked. Um, people have done it for hail suppression. And I think in principle that can work, but you have to have good knowledge about, you know, where the hail might be. Well, I'm I'm going to right now scratch that in the United States, it's about hail suppression because we don't see hail. So that can't be what they're doing. So, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, let's 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 I, let's set that I aside as a reason. Done. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is done maybe a little bit in the U.S. for snow augmentation. And I must say, I haven't heard anything about it in decades, but it still could be going on, you know, at a low level. I don't know. Um, but very careful. I, th I think there was way back when, I'm going to say this was in the 60s, they were doing some cloud seeding in the plains and then like, a week later, there was some big floods and a dam broke. <laughs> I go, ooh, did this have anything to do with the cloud seeding? And so then that that really cooled their jets quite a bit on the cloud seeding. There's a lot of liability issues. Yeah. So, you know, the exact status of that. Um, planes flying overhead, you know, and you can see that white streak, you know, the jet contrails. Um, you know, that's in climate modification <laughs> um you know well, you, i'm not i'm not talking about i'm not talking about climate. oh you're talking okay but chemtrails you don't yep. know i think that's that's conspiracy theory stuff really? um so the chemtrails thing no um the actual just exhaust from the jet which includes water vapor you know can cause these little white streaky clouds but but, but that judith that um dissipates very fast that doesn't stay not always, in, not in, always. In, okay in the okay. middle and then oh, well and then hold on hold on hold on but then in seattle they maybe they don't do it in reno so you never see it down there here you see one plane going back and forth back and forth or two planes it's not it's not flying into SeaTac with their contrails behind them they go overhead. It's like a zigzag. It almost creates a canopy overhead. Now, maybe they don't do that there, so you have no uh, subjective uh, experience of it, but we certainly have it here. We see it all the oh, time. Yeah, I have no and there's idea. Ma massive videos of, of it being done. So, yeah. I have no idea what that is. I have okay. no idea. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Uh, with regards to the Bill Gates thing, you know, so the idea would be to cool off the planet by blocking some of the solar radiation. Well, the, okay. that would screw up agriculture and plants, you know, by sure. diffused radiation rather than direct sunlight. Mm -hmm. um, it could have very bad unintended consequences on the weather patterns. I mean, it, it's um, it's an insane idea. Yeah, um, absolutely insane idea, and that. You know, it's one thing just to play around, you know, in models and see what would happen and, you know, ask some what if questions, but actually experimenting with this or even thinking yeah. about seriously doing that. I mean, you know, like, like, where's the problem? Where's the danger? This is all hypothetical. Yeah. I mean, some climate models that really aren't fit for purpose for, for right. predicting, you know, they're overtuned. They're usually uncertain. They disagree with each other. Come on. Um, we can 
anticipate some continued warming, but there may be big surprises with a solar minimum, a, a cluster of volcanoes. We're going to see a shift to the cold phase of the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, probably within 10 years. There's all sorts of things going on in the natural climate that could swamp you know, any CO2-driven climate change. We just don't know. Yeah. Um, the you know we can't control the climate, and we can count on being surprised <laughs> over the next eighty years by how this actually plays out. I never hear people talk about the sun. You know, I've had some some people on that were not scientists; they're more mystics and stuff. But um, you know, they pointed out like, well, you know, the sun also its relationship with the Earth. There's there's natural cycles there, and those might be tens of thousands of year cycles. But, um, you know, there's there's a natural you you mentioned Tai Chi before we got on the call. There's a natural yin and yang with the sun that certainly impacts the climate. But I never hear anybody talking about that. I don't know if they're studying it at all. But to me, this the sun's relationship, any kind of cyclical relationship, I think people that aren't scientists can just take for granted. Well, the sun shines and it's always the same, but it's it's also evolving as a as a as a body and and its relationship to the earth is a dynamic one but i don't think i never hear anybody in the climate science mention the sun as a possible factor in any of the stuff that you and i have been talking about well there's a vibrant solar climate research community and an international one but the whole topic is all but completely marginalized by the IPCC. I okay. mean, it, it's barely discussed. Yeah. Um, and and so that there's, I could go on and on with details. Is, which is that is that is that is that because it doesn't fit in with their it, exactly uh, their it's dangerous yeah. human caused climate change. That's what yeah. we're supposed to focus on. Yeah. And, yeah. And the activists don't want anything that would distract from that narrative and the right. politicians who are pushing this don't want anything that would distract from the approved narrative so um yeah <laughs> the sun this is a big deal and there and we don't nearly know enough in a quantitative sense and it's not just the direct heating there's all sorts of indirect effects from cosmic rays and magnetic mm. field and ultraviolet this and so many other indirect effects that aren't well known and certainly aren't included in any models well judith thanks so much i really appreciate you coming on where can people find when does the book out officially because you sent me a pdf copy is it out yet or no um it's available for pre-orders yeah. Kindle, paperback, and hardback. Um, the publication date is June 6th. All right, it's coming up. You can put your pre-order now before you forget. Um, I have a blog at judithcurry.com. And for those of you on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at CurryJA. Beautiful. Thank you, Judith. You know, uh, the, the book is Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. It is an excellent read. I'm recommending it to all my listeners. Thank you, Judith, so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight and your wisdom. I really appreciate it today. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. If I could boil down one of the big takeaways, it's that there's a distinct difference between a scientific consensus and simply a consensus of scientists. Mainstream media presents the climate issue as a scientific consensus, and it's really not. I also found it useful to deconstruct the whole narrative around climate change using Dr. Judith as a scientific reference to see what we know for sure and what is still very much up for debate. I hope we broke this down in a way that was easy to follow. For those of you that are looking to get a bit more informed, I highly recommend Dr. Judith's upcoming book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, and you can find it at Anthem Press, so www.anthempress.com, and I'll leave the exact link uh, in the show notes. You can find it there if you want to click on it there. Thank you, Base Campers, and we'll see you around the fire next week. If you find value in our show and wish to show us some love, we are now making that very easy to do. You simply go to www.basecampformen.com and click on Donate Support Basecamp. You'll find an easy way to make either monthly donations for as little as $5 a month, or you can donate just once. We love the monthly donation and hope to build this up over the coming months, but any show of support is greatly appreciated, honestly. Thank you for your support and for helping to keep Basecamp as a resource on your hero's journey. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac and you're listening to Base Camp for Men.